You know, I titled this tonight, Rags to Riches, not for any really good reason, except I'm about to say it once. Um, But, you know, you could see David's life, David's story, in a way, as one from Rags to Riches. He's the mere shepherd boy who not even his dad thinks to bring him in front of the prophet, but he's the one that ends up getting anointed king. And his life then uh, takes this path. The rest of the book of 1 Samuel, he is answering God's call in his life to be God's anointed, yet he's not king. Uh, and as pretty much as soon as the story begins, he's anointed, and then he goes out and he slays the giant, and everybody is singing his praises. His life is plunged into the wilderness, as it were, as Saul, the king, um, seeks his life. And so we see David, a man after God's own heart, fleeing into the wilderness, being patient on the Lord, knowing that the throne is his, yet waiting on God's time. As Jesse uh, led us through last week in uh, 1 Samuel 24, where David has Saul laid up for him on a silver platter, yet he does not take his life because he does not see it as a life for him to take. Um, and so tonight, uh, you know, we, we got to skip over a lot because we're going through the whole life of David. Next week, we're going to start with David as king uh, in 2 Samuel. And so I wanted to come to this story, uh, 1 Samuel 30. It's not a familiar story. At least it wasn't to me. It's not one I'd ever really paused and thought about. And it's not one that is immediately clear, maybe, why it's there. Uh, it's a little troublesome. David has multiple wives. Uh, his wives get captured, and what are we supposed to do with that? Um, he hunts down these guys and kills all of them. What are we supposed to do that? That's not really the first time we've seen that, though. Um, but ever since David entered the scene of the story of 1 Samuel, what the author has been trying to show us is that David is the ideal king. That even though he is not at this point the king, God has chosen him. And everything we see in his life and the way that he follows God and seeks God shows us that he is the king that we need. But he's also a man. He's a man after God's own heart. So you can see, as we look at David, the man in the wilderness, we see what it's like to follow God, to become godly in the wilderness. When things are not going our way, when things are against us, right? And we see both of these tonight. We kind of see this, this dichotomy, big word for you there, um, tonight. As we, in, we kind of end the, the, we near the end of the rags to riches story. This is going to be the last story of David in the wilderness in the book of Samuel. Uh, and the next time we'll see him, he's becoming king. So we see how David's the ideal king here, how he's God's chosen. But we also see him as a man, uh, a man who has to decide... What following God is going to be like in his life, especially when things are hard, especially when there's grief and sorrow and suffering, okay? Uh, I don't want to read the whole thing uh, at the beginning tonight. We're going to divide it up into sections tonight. I hope you're okay with that. And if you're not, sorry. So the first one, I I got an outline there for you in your notes section. The first portion we're going to read here is verses 1 through 8. And in verses 1 through 8, David shows us, faith. Okay, let me read verses 1 through 8 for us. 
Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire. And they had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and their sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives had also been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, for, for each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. David here shows us faith. Okay, I'm going to suggest to you, though we haven't read all the surrounding chapters, this is the climax of 1 Samuel. Remember, no sooner had David been anointed and found great victory, his life is plunged into wilderness. He's been dodging spears, assassination attempts. He's been roaming the wilderness with this little ragtag army, um, and he's been waiting on God. Waiting for God's time in his life, even though he knows he's God's chosen. So we see God's chosen, God's anointed, and he's on the run. His life is anything but glorious at this point, but he's been faithful. And the last few chapters kind of build to a crescendo the difference between Saul uh, and David. And there's these contrasts uh, between Saul and David. David, the ideal king, Saul, the unfit king. But there's something that's not different about them. If you read all these chapters, if you read the surrounding chapters, if you read the Saul accounts, both of them are surrounded by trouble on all sides. Both of them face doom. Um, And one of them meets it, actually, in the next chapter, Saul. Uh, David has had this uneasy alliance with the Philistines, uneasy because uh, if he followed through with it all the way, he'd have to go fight against Israel, but he's been spared from having to do that. So him and his little ragtag bunch, they head home for this place called Ziklag. If you ever build your own city, I'm sure you're going to name it Ziklag because that sounds cool. Um, But they have this sigh of relief because they're getting to head home uh, and chill out for a while. They get home and it's all in ruins. And it's so bad that we're told that they weep until they physically can weep no more. Okay, we're told that no one was killed, which seems like good news, but good news. But if no one was killed, we know what that means. That means that they were going to sell who they took into slavery. Okay, and now even David's own men talk of stoning him. The first thing I just want to see is this, is that being God's chosen, following God, doing right, being faithful does not spare David from trouble. We've actually seen the exact opposite from day one. It plunged him headlong into trouble, headlong into controversy, headlong uh, into suffering in this life. It's the one thing that David and Saul had in common. You know, you see a lot, people mean well. I know they do. But a lot of, you know, people try to encourage one another with, with the phrase, I know you've heard it, God will never give you more than you can handle, right? If you read the Bible, you know that's not true. Actually, God is actually sometimes in the habit of giving his people more than they can handle. Um, And they face a lot more than they can handle all the time. But here's the glaring contrast. The glaring glaring contrast is there in verse 6. 
But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. This is the glaring contrast of following God. Um, or sorry, the glaring contrast of following God or not following God is not whether or not we will find trouble. The glaring contrast of following God and not following God is what you will do in it or what you will do with it. What you will do in response to it, right? How does David strengthen himself? Well, look what he does. How do, how do we understand this? Uh, there's many false ways that we could probably understand it, that he just kind of sucks it up and says, you know, God's powerful, I'm going to be powerful. But there's actually, we actually have a hint of what this is, because in 1 Samuel 23, remember a couple of weeks ago, we kind of looked at 1 Samuel 22 through 24 as a whole of Jonathan's friendship with David. Well, there's an episode in chapter 23 there where David is trying to figure out why Saul is trying to kill him. And we read there that Jonathan came to David and strengthened David's hand in God. How did he do that? He said this, Do not fear the hand of my father, for I know you shall be king over Israel. What is Jonathan doing? What was Jonathan leading David to? The promise of God. The word of God on David's life. So that gives us a hint to what David does here. He reminds himself and believes in the promises of God. You see, David had two choices. David had two realities with which he could view the world at this point. The realities of his circumstances. And the realities of his circumstances are screaming this. You are hopeless. One, everybody that they love is taken away from them. Two, how are they going to find these people? Right? Okay? His reality of his circumstances screamed that all was lost. Or he had the reality of God. The reality of God's character. The reality of God was who God was. And the reality of what God had promised in David's life. It's when the bottom falls out that you learn what you really trust in. It's when things fall apart for you that you will learn what it is you are resting in. Just watch what you turn to. And there's so many directions we could go with this. What, for some of you, it's more time in the library. And don't lie to me. Right? I'm going to just buckle down and I'm going to do this. And the library becomes your refuge, your rock, your redeemer. Some of you, you hit the gym, right? Um, that I'm just, I've got to get control of myself. If nothing else, I've got to get control of myself. Some of you binge on Netflix or something like that, right? Guys, maybe video games. And you say, I've just got to check out for a while. I've just got to get away from it all. And there's nothing inherently wrong with any of those. But the question before us is, what would it be like to turn in our time of need in our time of trouble, in our time of distress, what would it be like to turn to the character and the promises of God? What would that look like? And I don't want to over-spiritualize this, but what would that look like? We're told that David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. It started for David with a personal faith. Right? This is where Saul had lost it all. Saul had been God's chosen. Saul had been the Lord's anointed. But there was never a personal connection. Saul never called upon God for himself. That was Saul's demise. But David had a personal face. You know, David looks at his life and he says, you know, I, can, I stole this quote, but I can no longer say my house, my city, or my possessions, but I can say my God. 
my God. As he does in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Through faith, David knew that he didn't need God to show up. He needed to be reminded that God was already there. His circumstances wanted to keep him from seeing that. Pastor in uh, Texas named Matt Chandler. If you've never heard, if you're into listening to pastors, look up Matt Chandler. He's a fantastic preacher. Uh, But he loves to give this illustration. God is not an ambulance driver. What does an ambulance do? An ambulance shows up after everything's fallen apart, right? An ambulance shows up and the people get out of the ambulance and they assess the situation and say, okay, what do I need to do now to get this situation back together? God is not an ambulance driver because God does not show up late because God never leaves, right? David had the promises of God to assure him of this, that the anointing in his life, that God had put his blessing on him, that was with him, even when it was all falling apart. He had that assurance. In other words, he looked beyond himself to something outside of himself. He had to. He had to look beyond his circumstances. He looked to the only thing he could be sure of. Now, how in the world are we supposed to do that with our sufferings, with our lives? And this may seem like a leap or just stamping something, but it's the cross, y'all. It's the cross of Christ. We have the cross of Christ that for eternity testifies to the world and to us that God cannot be against us. That for all time and forever he is for us. And that the things in my life that are wrong, whatever the reason for them may be, it cannot be that God does not love me. It cannot be that. If I am sheltered in the cross. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13, Paul uh, is writing the Thessalonians and he tells them this. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Saying these people are kind of freaking out because people are dying and they don't know if they're going to heaven or what. And he says, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. It's not, hey, the gospel's true, so you don't need to grieve anymore. That's not what he says. He says, we don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. We don't want you to grieve as if what is wrong, if that is the ultimate reality, because the gospel is the ultimate reality. And we know that because the cross happened. That Jesus died and he was raised from the dead. It points us to God's love for us in Christ. And we're told to strengthen ourselves in it, in him. David, David, Jesus David, yeah, David strengthened himself in the Lord as God. He shows us what faith is. The second thing here is, is he shows us faith. And this is verses 9 through 20, and I'm going to read through these rather quickly. Verses 9 through 20, kind of the meat of the passage here. So after getting his answer from God, we read in verse 9. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor, where... Those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook of Bezor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink and they gave him a piece of cake and figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he'd eaten, his spirit revived for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant of an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb. And we burned Zik. 
Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, will you take me to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him, and they said, this is David's spoil. David shows us justice here, okay? He strengthened himself in his God. He seeks God's lead. God guarantees him victory. God guarantees him vengeance and justice, okay? And they're helped along the way in God's providence by this Egyptian, and they find the army. The army's drunk and partying because they're so happy at what they've done, and David lays them all out. Again, Game of Thrones could not be a more appropriate title to this series, right? Because this is the kind of stories that we get over and over again. These are the parts of the story that we don't know what to do with. These are the parts of the story that you did not hear in Sunday school, right? Uh, because Sunday school stopped at strengthening yourself in God and seek his guidance. And that's all you really need to know. But we have kind of the meat of the stories that he goes after these people and slays them, right? And I want us to see that this is actually integral to the story that we're being told about David and who he is as the ideal king. The Amalekites are not somebody new. Uh, In Exodus chapter 17, fresh out of Egypt, the Amalekites come upon Israel full of women and children traveling through the wilderness. And they try to attack them um, and, and... Take their stuff, okay? They're portrayed as terrorists who kind of prey on the weak throughout the Old Testament. Um, Back in 1 Samuel 15, Saul was commanded to go and to commit the Amalekites to destruction. And he doesn't. He spares them. And that begins his demise of God rejecting him as his people's king. And so now we see the contrast of the two again. David is once again doing what Saul has failed to do. He's executing justice. God's justice. Not his own. God's justice. God's judgment uh, against the Amalekites for their evil that they have done. So... Just I, we don't have enough time to just dive into, but this is this is what I want you to see. Like the floods and natural disasters elsewhere in the Old Testament, David is God's chosen instrument of judgment in this instance. Okay, he's God's anointed king. Okay, you could point to things like the Crusades and say these are the kind of stories in the Old Testament that enabled things like the Crusades, and people may have held on to things like this. But something we know uh, the Crusades are. I learned about it in seminary, and I don't remember all of it. It was really long and tedious, but. Um, One thing we know about the Crusades, they were not led by God's anointed king and they were not given express command by God to do what they did, whatever they did, and all that the Crusades um, involved. But here is what I want you to see, and it seems totally counterintuitive, why there is judgment here, why there is justice here. It's because God is love. The, The God of the Bible is the God of true love. Therefore, he judges and destroys evil. God so loves his world and his people that he will not let sin and evil destroy it. And he will not let it go unpunished. 
That's the story we're being told here. And David is the king that we need because David is the one that will carry it out. This is where we see the character of a righteous and holy God. He really does hate evil. And he really is grieved over what sin does to this world and does to his people. And he has the power to destroy it. And he says that he will. The Old Testament and the New Testament have both of these. The Old Testament and the New Testament have both mercy and judgment. But in the Old Testament, when we see justice, we see judgment coming up in real time through the stories. But in the New Testament, the judgment's there, but it's usually all anchored at the end, right? And I'll get to why that is in a second. But this is why the problem of evil is such an enduring one, right? Is God all-powerful? But if he is and he allows evil, then he must be apathetic toward evil, right? Or is he all good, and since there's still evil, that means he must be powerless to do anything about it? Well, people don't want a God that allows evil, but they also don't want a God of wrath. And it's the ultimate catch-22, because you can't have both. And they also assume that if there is a God, he will be like me, or um, or do what's sensible to me. We all hunger for justice. Now, what your bar of justice is or not, I'm not going to argue right now, but you all hunger for justice. Your generation is the hashtag justice generation, right? Whether it's the lost children, whether it's um, immigration, whether it's Ferguson, all these things going on. We look at them and we may not agree on what is wrong, but we are all agreeing that something is wrong and something must be done. That there has to be justice. Things have to be made right. And what the story will continue to tell us, and we'll see this even more next week. If God is a God of justice, we know that he is going to recover each and every last thing that has been broken. Each and every one. But here it is. You see, it's only Christianity. It's only the gospel that dares to claim that God himself put himself on the hook of evil and suffering. He literally hung himself on it. This is where David once again shows us Jesus, the king of the universe who will destroy every enemy of God and God's people. And we know that because he destroyed already the great enemy, death itself. After the flood... Flood's a whole other story that we don't have time to get into, so I'm just going to mention it to you. Whatever. Um, but after the flood, this great judgment on sin and evil of God uh, preserving the earth so that it does not come to ruin, okay? Noah and his family come off the ark, and they have to deal with a question. And the question is this. If this God cannot... Um, will not um, let evil and injustice go by, if he will deal with it, if he is holy and righteous and he must deal with sin and suffering, then what is the hope for us? Who's to say he is not going to besiege the earth with water all over again? You remember what God does? You remember what God does? He puts a bow in the sky, we're told. We know as a rainbow, right? But the word there in the original language is not like a bow you put in your hair. It's the word for battle bow, okay, for a battle bow. So we see that when the people of God see the storm clouds of life, figuratively speaking, gather, 
They see the battle bow of God cocked and ready, but it's not pointed at them. Where is it pointed? At himself. And so, those of us in Christ, having the cross, we know that the bow has been loosed, but not against us. But it's the Son of God Himself, who was destroyed, so we wouldn't have to be. Because our God loves us so much, He wants to destroy all evil and all suffering. But He loves us so much, He did not want to destroy us in the process. And so he loosed it on his own son. Maybe there's a hint there of how Jesus can be so bold to say, love your enemy. Christopher Hitchens, a renowned atheist, used to say that was the most untenable of Jesus' claims. Love your enemy, right? Because it is God who is the judge. God who has and will judge. And Jesus who will return as judge. So I can love my enemy because it is not up to me to judge. Because God has promised he will, do, he will deal with it. We have to ask ourselves, do we have any kind of category for a king like that? David shows us faith. David shows us justice. The last thing here, really quick. David shows us grace. The last five verses here, starting in verse 21. Then David came back to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David, who had been left at the brook Bezor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. And then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said... You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. Here's the thing. David shows us the justice of God. That God will repay us and all things, each and every deed on this earth, in the history. So there's no reasonable explanation in light of that, that David's verdict here is that all share alike in the spools of war. The only answer can be grace. Grace, this buzzword, this, this word that just comes up over and over and over again. It's David's theology of grace that leads him to let all share in the recovery of what was lost. Those who risk their lives and those who are too exhausted to go any further receive the same thing. And it's an amazing picture, isn't it? The whole passage kind of is that David is fierce and decisive in the face of evil. At the same time, he is tender and gracious with those he calls friends. All the men return in verse 20 saying, this is David's spool. But you see what David is saying. Men, this is not what we recovered. This is what God gave us. David shows us grace. Because grace wasn't just a theological concept for David. It was the way in which he viewed the world. And if we understand the gospel, what exactly is the gospel is telling us, we cannot help but be a people of grace. 
And the reason that this word and this concept and this thing in the gospel comes up over and over and over again is because we are not, we are better at nothing else than denying this concept. Over and over again, whether it's to other people that we come in contact with after we leave something like this, or whether it's to ourselves with how we're doing or how we feel. It's where David gives us such an amazing picture of Jesus here. Jesus in Matthew 11, who says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But here's the thing. God, Jesus also told us about a God who, that if our righteousness did not exceed that of the Pharisees, we wouldn't even enter his kingdom. So how can a Savior, a God, be like that, offer us a rest like that? And again, it's the cross that gives us the ultimate picture. We sing a song here. Let us love and sing and wonder. And this is my favorite verse of the song. Let us wonder, as we look at the cross, let us wonder, grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust us, justice smiles and asks no more. This is it, y'all. We all are longing for the verdict of David by the brook of Bazor. We all want to be given the reprieve. No more is required of you. That is the gospel. That is the true king that we need. Why is grace such a big deal? Because there is a God of perfect, holy justice who will repay all people of all time for all their deeds. And there is a God of grace in Jesus who says, you know what? I'm going to give my deeds to you. No more is required of you. When we see the cross of Christ isn't just our get out of hell free card. We actually begin to see that it's the thing that I need every single day. So I will stop beating myself into the ground. So I will stop beating others up around me for not living up to what I think they should. This is the gospel, y'all. The gospel that humbles us to ashes in view of God's justice, yet it exalts us to the heavens in view of the immensity of His grace. He takes at the cross our rags and He gives us in exchange all of His riches. And wherever you find yourself tonight, He looks at you and says, no more. I require of you. There's freedom in that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, most of us, even in our best days, are like those who are exhausted by the brook. We've exhausted every means we have of refreshing ourselves, of mustering up the strength, of repaying our debt, of whipping ourselves into shape, of achieving what we think we should achieve, all of it. 
we need to hear definitively that you look upon us in love and justice. And you say, no more is required of you because of the love that I have for you and my son. Would we see, would we know, would we believe that you so loved the world and us that you gave? Thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.